Thank you. Vision Ministries in Granville really has been a partnership. I never want you to think you're getting more than we're getting. Um, we, we, are so, we so value this church and our connection and your leaders, of course, people that we've loved over the years. So I'm glad to be back. It's been a few years. We're sort of COVID distant since uh, this last couple of years of our reality. Um, I have some friends in uh, dry country, Alberta. That's kind of over by the Saskatchewan border, not all the way to the south, who a couple of decades ago bought the land and buildings that had been homesteaded by some people named Naismith. The Naismiths, there's some connection maybe even to the origin of basketball there. Anyway, when John and Andrew Goodbrand bought the place, they found decades of meticulous records of uh, business dealings and of politics and lots of correspondence about Christian beliefs and practices, just tons of papers. One of the great benefits of the Naismith approach to things was that they composed letters on poor quality paper first, and then they made a good copy and they sent that to their friend, but they had the old copy, the original there, and then they clipped them together when they came back. So it's kind of cool to to read some of that correspondence. Anyway, John and Andrew sorted all these papers, and then they donated them to the Glenbow Museum in Calgary, because this was kind of historic material from the beginning of the the 20th century. They, They told me the whole story about a dozen years ago, but nearly three years ago, it'll be three years ago in September, I was in downtown Calgary with just one hour to kill, but I was suddenly right across the street from the Glenbow Museum. So I went in, and the receptionist told me that I was too late, that all the uh, Glenbow historical archives had been shipped off to the University of Calgary that week. Now, this is disappointing to me, or was, because for years, I'd wanted to read one specific original letter that John had told me about. So I asked the woman at the desk if she'd give me the phone number of the archivists, Um, I was finally pursuing this, so I wanted to come back later and find the archives, find this letter at the University of Calgary. The man on the other end of the phone said, oh no, we we haven't sent that yet. It's up here. I'll come down to the lobby and get you. I guess it's sort of secure the archives of Alberta. Um, And uh, you can spend some time looking for this. For a needle in a haystack. (laughs) Because because the... uh, Apparently, and this man told me, the uh, Naismith papers were uh, a row of boxes of letters um, a meter and a half wide, a double row of those, so 10 feet of letters and, and etc. And I thought, this is not possible. But, but some smart dry country rancher farmers had sorted everything, and we had a computer. So I took a guess at... Uh, some specific, actually, I asked for five boxes that looked like they might be the right dates for what I was looking for, because I had a little knowledge in in the back of my mind. Um, I thought it might happen because I was looking for Mr. Naismith's mention of a man named Sidney Burge. I knew that this letter talked about a man named Sidney Burge, so I thought, let's see what this is. Um, The uh, second letter in the second box had Sid's name on it. And so I was kind of thrilled by that. 
Now, one more bit of background before I read from that letter. Um, maybe you're seeing the actual letter up there. Well, you're seeing a picture of the actual letter right now. You can barely read it, but in person you can read it a little better. Um, the Naismiths were part of uh, that little Christian tribe that's sometimes called the exclusive Plymouth Brethren. Granville Chapel has roots in a parallel group of churches that used to be called the, the Plymouth Brethren. The exclusives had a very limited circle of other Christians they could fellowship with, people who believed exactly as they did. Anyway, David Naismith in this letter is writing to some safe, exclusive brethren folks in Saskatchewan, talking about the very open brethren who gathered in Berry Creek, Alberta, a little tiny settlement on the prairies. The open brethren were more open, slightly more open, to people with different understanding of scripture and beliefs. He's writing about an incident with Mr. Burge, one of the leaders amongst that group at Berry Creek. And last little note, just because it's fun to say, my dad was a little eight-year-old at Berry Creek Gospel Hall when this note was written on December 2, 1927. Mr. Burge was an important influence in his life. Okay, so there's the slide. This is what, what Doc, Mr. Naismith, David Naismith writes. He says, there was a company of OB, that means open brethren, 10 miles west, and I frequently met them on the way to the coal mine 20 miles west. There's no trees in that part of the prairie, so you have to have coal to survive the winter. So you can imagine that there are people going there with wagons to get coal and people returning with wagons full of coal, right? And so that's what he's referring to. He says, Mr. Sidney Burge, who had traveled with a gospel wagon through our towns in western Ontario, was one of them. I met him on the road, and I intended to tell him just where he got off. I said, we are not on the same side of the fence. Uh, Mr. Naismith was intending to say, you're wrong about some things, very definitely. And he said, I hope that will not hinder our love for one another, <laughs> which I always thought that was a great line <laughs> when someone's just told you what a dumb person you are. That, that, that took some of the wind out of my sails, but it was some years before the old prejudice died out, and I feel certain that not only the first division amongst those gathered out to the Lord's name, not only the first division amongst Christians, but all subsequent divisions have been erroneous and avoidable. I will give you one you knew well, old Mrs. Pollock, now with the Lord, no doubt, who I look upon as a help long ago to a righteous understanding of the true position. At my first minute visit to Gray Church, I sought to get her clear on the grant question that people were fighting about, and all I could get out of the dear old sister was that it was a want of the element, meaning love. There wasn't enough of the element, love. I could see that her heart was big enough for both parties of the Gray meeting, and it was only the weight of a friendship that had made her take sides with those with us. It's a neat old letter, hey? To, to I just was so excited when I found that, that letter that I'd heard about. I couldn't find the return letter in the box, but I, I checked with Rancher John a couple of years ago, and he told me that uh, the fellow Mr. Naismith was writing to wrote back to him and disfellowshipped him. <laughs> If you're going to start loving those open brethren, we're having nothing more to do with you. 
It's a long story, but, but I'm hoping that those two phrases will stick in your brain. It was a want of the, uh, I hope that will, that will not hinder our love for one another. I hope our disagreements won't hinder our love for one another. And it was a want of the element, meaning love. Love's kind of a Sunday school answer for everything, isn't it, right? More is better, right? All you need is love, love, love is all you really need, right? Um, it for sure underlies what I want to draw your attention to today, which is the kind of mess we find ourselves in post-COVID and given some serious decline in the, in the Western church and in the world all around us. We're, we're isolated and lonely, and worse than that, we're divided too much of the time. We've, we've lost the middle ground. Have you noticed this in culture? And, and even as you read about the church, people are, are angry and contemptuous, right? The, the North American church, like the culture around us, is full of sort of us versus them, right? I'll make you part of us today, and them can be somewhere else. But there's all kinds of disagreements where we, we just dismiss the other people with no respect, we just say, those guys and, and us guys over here. Lots of you will remember Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount, you've learned that our forefathers were told do not commit murder, but what I tell you is this, anyone who nurses anger against his, no, pardon me, do not commit murder, anyone who commits murder must be brought to judgment, but what I tell you is this, Anyone who nurses anger against his brother must be brought to judgment. If he abuses his brother, he must answer for it to the courts. If he sneers at him, he'll have to answer for it in the fires of hell, right? Jesus said, we're not to be like that. We're not even to, to sneer at our brother or sister. Philosopher Dallas Willard said that Jesus begins the list of his uh, expansions of the ancient law with anger and contempt because they're the seething brew in which we live, right? We just live in this world of anger and contempt where someone cuts you off on the road and you say something about them and where someone has a different opinion and you just dismiss them immediately. I mean, maybe if you don't actually, aren't aware of that, just think of someone on the opposite side of masking or vaxxing or freedom convoys to you, right? Idiots and fires of hell to me, right? Um, because that's how the world seems to be these days. COVID seems to have hugely magnified that, this in the church, the sort of us versus them. I've been in the middle of some of those situations and the anger and contempt have been, have been painful. Well, <clears throat> perhaps the most influential follower of Jesus in history is a man that we call the Apostle Paul, right? He wrote, 13 letters, kind of half of the 27 books of the New Testament. One of his early letters was to the church in Corinth, the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And it's got lots of stuff in there, but it's got a whole bunch of disagreements, a whole bunch of conflicts within the church. The first and third chapters deal with uh, conflict about who's going to be the primary influencer of the church. Will it be Paul? Will it be Apollos? Will it be Peter? Will it be Jesus? And Paul says, is Christ divided? But you see, they're fighting about this. And he says, but is, is Christ divided? 
A couple of chapters later, Paul deals with a controversy, a disagreement about someone, I call it impurity with impunity, someone and his supporters who figure that Christian freedom is licensed for anything sexual, right? Um, in the next chapter, number six, Paul says that some of the Christians are even taking others to court. His response to that division is the, the next slide that you see there. One brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? A strong point from Paul that it's better not to get our way when we're in conflict, right? He says it'd be better to be wronged. Wouldn't that be better for us? Not really. Chapter uh, 8 and 10 deals with the disagreement about whether Christians could eat meat that had been offered to idols. This was something they cared about in the first century, right? And Paul says, we're no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. But then he says... When you sin against brothers and sisters in this way, by eating or not eating, you sin against Christ. He says, when you have disagreements like this and don't treat the other person better or lift them up, you're actually sinning against Jesus himself, not just against those people. Now that, that long series of two perspectives on matters in, the, in that church is followed by what I think of as kind of the core of 1 Corinthians, chapters 11 to 15. Paul, first of all, gets people in that part of 1 Corinthians focused on the Lord's Supper. My favorite line is actually in chapter 10, the verse that says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. And then Paul talks about, in, in chapter 11, people taking part in communion without discerning the body of Christ. And most smart theologians mean this body, right? They come together to eat and drink and remember Jesus, and they don't think about one another, right? He cares about that. Um, chapter 12 reminds us of the various gifts that the Spirit of God gives to each of us that then draw us together into an actual body that works together. The verses there say, just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit to form one body. See how Paul is dealing with the, the problem of deeply committed followers of Jesus with strong perspectives that they disagree about? He's saying, we're joined by the work of Jesus. Just go to the Lord's Supper. We're made into one body, right? We're joined by the work of the Holy Spirit who gives us jobs to do and make us part of that body. He says, that's, that's Paul saying, here's the response to disagreement. You're one. You're joined by Jesus. You're joined by the Spirit of God. But I still haven't quite gotten to the main thing. And, and the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? And the main thing is introduced to us in just half a verse at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> Sorry, if, if uh, I think that if... Uh, <laughs> That's enough. Um, if God had really intended chapters and verses, this little line would have been at the beginning of chapter 13. But here's the line. It says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. 
most excellent way sounds pretty main and pretty important. And then he launches into a piece of sort of poetic prose that is so rich and deeply ingrained in us that despite its kind of saccharine overuse by people who don't know about the love that fires the sun, it can still raise goosebumps on me. Let me, let me read it to you from 1 Corinthians 13, just a little bit of it. <clears throat> Here's the words. The most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I uh, give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames. I like it here. I think it's maybe hardship up here. Yeah, if I surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. <clears throat> love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And then the, uh, <clears throat> then the chapter finishes with that important line that the greatest of these is love. You're not surprised that I've kind of finally landed it, right? Because, because this is the element that Mrs. Pollock was talking about. Love. God loves, and, and we're called to love as well. God so much loved the world, it says in John 3.16. God is love, it says in First John, a uh, number of places in John's letter. Thank you for fresh there, Dan. Um, the uh, ancient Hebrew Shema. Um, listen, Israel, in Deuteronomy 6, and Jesus' affirmation of it in the great commandment that we're to love God and to love other people, right? To love God back and to love other people. And then in, in John 13, where it says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Paul knew and John knew, as Jesus, of course, probably warned them, Christians would have kind of contrary understandings of the way things really are, of, of truth and direction from God. So Jesus, the person who came to kind of finish religion, right, to be done with it and, and to get rid of rules and regulations as our primary way of connecting to God, he actually, in John 13, says, but I'm going to give you a new commandment. Right? So he, here's someone who's getting rid of that stuff, and he says, I have a new commandment. He gives it <clears throat> on the heels of his uh, previous couple of sentences that are spoken on the evening of his death. Those sentences say, I'm leaving. You're staying here, whether you like it or not, but I'm leaving. So love one another as I have loved you. 
You now have this responsibility, is what Jesus is saying. We have to take on the role of loving for the benefit of one another. That's the, the working out of the element, God's love for our love for others, our particular love for one another as Jesus' family and body and friends and servants kind of obeying his command. But, but he also says a very important thing related to it. He says, you know, what if you people actually figured out how to get along? The community outside might say, look at those people. They don't always agree about everything, but they but they care about one another. They love one another. They're, they're for one another. Look at, look at them, right? I like the New Living Translation of verse 35 that says, your, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples, right? If we just did that, if we were those kind of people. So how many people here think that uh, loving God and others and loving Jesus' followers is a good thing. Do you want to show your hands? Yeah, yeah good. It's uh, kind of hard to be against it, at least theoretically. <laughs> um, let me give you a bit of Russell Moore, <clears throat> who's a public theologian with Christianity Today. A couple of months ago, he wrote a, a very important essay in which he uh, quotes one of my favorite Christian poets, preachers, thinkers, 96-year-old Wendell Berry, who probably isn't with us a whole lot longer, but here, here's the quote from, from uh, Russell Moore. He says, in Jaber Crow, that's one of Berry's novels, in Jaber Crow, Wendell Berry described Jaber the barber listening to Troy, a waiting customer, rail about rounding up all the communists and having them shot. Jaber stopped and he looked at Troy and he said, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And Troy replied, where did you get that crap? When Jaber said, Jesus Christ, Troy could only respond, oh. Jaber then reflected. It would have been a great moment in the history of Christianity, except that I did not love Troy. <laughs> this is the way it is with this thing that old Mrs. Pollock and I are calling the element this character trait that Mr. Burge figured didn't have to be injured by disagreement, right? It's hard to actually practice it. It's so much easier to talk about it. But remember that Jesus' close follower, John, said, if we don't love people that we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see, right? This is, this is what we're called to. Here's, a, here's what I said in an e-note to the other 25 people in our new little church. It's uh, late June. I just wrote this to them. I, the start, the, the reline was summertime and the living is easy. Fish are jumping and the cotton is high, right? Not, not exactly an Alberta image, but the old Gershwin lines do seem to work for how I'm feeling these days. This is my email. The weather is so June pleasant. But more significant in my little stumble heavenward was my experience of the past week. I had a lump of anxiety building and building for a month. Then I remembered a lesson that felt like it came right from God to me in the previous six months, right? My recent learning is many times when you find the language of God giving us peace, taking away our cares in the Bible, then you also find a line that says, so take advantage of this. 
At the Last Supper, Jesus says, peace is my parting gift to you. But he follows that with, do not let your hearts be troubled. Or Peter says in his first letter, you are God's personal concern, but also tells us to cast all our anxieties on him. So, so I worked on doing just that, taking hold of the peace, giving away the anxieties, entering into this, I suppose. And you know what? It, 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 it worked for me. <laughs> I say that kind of to them as well, right? I actually said, and have been figuring this out for the last six or 12 months, right? Saying, golly, I, this stuff's all been given to us already. You know, he already left his peace for us. Take it. Don't, don't let your, therefore, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't put your heart through all those troubles. He already said, you're my personal concern. Cast my anxieties on him. So that was my little preach to my friends about anxiety. But there's a kind of taking it up with all of the elements of the Christian faith where something is available to us and we have to be people who take it, who get a hold of this thing. Paul talks about it in Philippians. We prayed it. Paul did earlier um, uh, it, before the service about working out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? For it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good purposes. But right, we have to be people who, who do that. There's stuff for us to do. I love how John the Apostle talks about loving in that first letter. He says in 1 John 3.18 that we aren't to be people who talk about love, but who love in actions, with actions and in truth. Dear children, let us not love with word or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Doing loving things for other people. He says in the next chapter that if we love that way, then God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Right? I think this is the kind of building the forms version of entering into the element. Right? Building the forms, that means like if you're making a sidewalk, right? You want to have this beautiful chunk of cement there from the front of your house or, or on the street. And the way they do that, and you've probably all seen it, is they take very dirty old boards. Often they're just covered with oil so that they don't stick to cement. They make the shape of a sidewalk, and then, uh, then someone pours cement in it. And it dries, and you take off the ugly old boards, and you're left with the real, solid, beautiful new sidewalk. I think that, that John is saying we start by the loving actions that other people need. You know, we, we do good to them. We don't think bad things about them. We, we're kind to them. We, we tell other people good things, things about them. And when we do that, God fills in the solid cement of, of deep loving in our heart. And you know what? Some of you have had that experience, I certainly have, actually with people I absolutely didn't love, who I'm not going to name, but I decided to treat them differently, and God made me love them. So uh, today is one more Sunday talk that is, uh, is barely a beginning, because of course there's a want of the element. Of course it's what we need to be doing. Love is actions, love is a verb not just a noun. I think I'm, I don't, you know what, Paul? I don't remember the time. 
I was going to, yeah, you know what, I'm kind of done here, right? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Well, you know, I wanted to just, I just wanted to kind of attach a tune to this and hopefully help you remember it a bit better. A few of you remember John 13, right, 34 and 35 is an old song. So if, if I, in my broken voice today, can get us going, why, why don't you stand up? Because the band's going to come up in a minute anyway, but, but while I... Why don't we just give this a try, okay? So, so here's where we're at, okay? A new commandment I give unto you That you love one another As I have loved you That you love one another As I have loved you by this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. By this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. 